Volume. Welcome to Zondo Commission Unpacked, a Corruption Watch podcast. My name is Mwepim Valencia Dalani. This podcast is brought to you by Corruption Watch and produced by Volume. It's been an interesting few weeks of the commission, with many of the people implicated in corruption or state capture finally making an appearance. In this series, we're going to have deep dive conversations about the commission of inquiry to state capture. We're going to do this with people close to the commission, as well as experts in the anti-corruption space in South Africa. You're listening to Zondo Commission Unpacked, a Corruption Watch podcast. Now, our guest for this episode is Ariella Scher. She's an attorney for the Center for Applied Legal Studies. They are based at Vest University. Ariella, welcome to Zondo Commission Unpacked. Hi, Mopeng. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really good, thanks. First, can you tell us what it is that Carls does? Yes, sure. So, as you said, I'm an attorney at the Center for Applied Legal Studies. We're a public interest law firm based at the University of Witwatersrand, and we assist communities and individuals with strategic litigation towards human rights. So we have five different programs, um, ranging from gender justice to environmental justice to business and human rights um, and various other issues. And each of our programs works to combine litigation and research and advocacy um, in the promotion of human rights in, in South Africa and regionally. Hmm. That is an interesting area of work, particularly in a society like ours. Now, given what you've just explained, can you tell us what Carl's interest is in the Zondo Commission? So with regard to the Zondo Commission, I think generally it's of interest to all South Africans, um, but also specifically it's of interest to Carl's because as I said, we work towards the promotion of human rights in South Africa. And so, so many of the issues that, that the Zondo Commission is mandated to explore and, and investigate, um, issues of corruption, issues of public procurement, um, those, those kinds of issues, and, and just the rule of law and constitutionalism generally, those are very much of issues to, of issue and of interest to CULS. So in particular, CULS is a member of the Civil Society Working Group, um, which is a working group across civil society with, with lots of um, NGOs, public interest law organizations and, and other similar organizations that works together to um, lobby and, and um, raise issues directly with the Zondo Commission, but also make public issues that come up at the Zondo Commission that are of interest in the context um, of what civil society is looking for in, in the promotion of, of the rule of law and constitutionalism. I hear the point that you make about the importance of it being a public process. I mean, we've had commissions before that have been open to the public, but for this one, extra care was taken to make sure that members of the public don't go uninformed. To what extent has this been important for how the Commission communicates with members of the public? So what I would say firstly is why it's important for the Commission to be, as you say, taking extra care to ensure that, that the public has access to its workings. And I think that that's because obviously it's, it's, it was very clear and through the work of the Commission it's just becoming increasingly clear 
that state capture was so widespread across all facets of, of the state and the government's workings. And so, you know, while there might have been an, an one example of state capture, for example, at ESCOM, it's not only in the issue, in, sorry, in the area of energy and, and electricity that that becomes relevant or that we can see the effects of that. It's all across the state because where money is either wasted or stolen in one area of the state, it means that it's not available for provision in other areas such as you know, the provision of housing or, or water and, and of course directly in electricity. So I think it's really important because of the extent of state capture that's being revealed and because we know then that it has affected every single aspect of, of um, the way in which the state has been able to perform its obligations over the past decade or so. So I think that's why that kind of public access is important. I think that the Commission has been very, very good at ensuring that kind of access. I think obviously it could be better, um, but we know that there's a lot of um, limitations on it just generally with the COVID pandemic, with the fact of a, a widespread lack of access to things like internet across South Africa. So there's always room for improvement, but I would say that overall in, in the context that the Commission has been operating, it has done a very good job to make itself available to the public. Available as it has been though, there have been material aspects of its work that remain a bit unclear. For instance, it has been described as an inquisitorial process, and it is, as opposed to an accusatorial one. Why is it important to make that distinction? So it is helpful to draw the distinction between, as you say, the, the commission as a, an inquisitorial process, and then what happens more in our courts, which is accusatorial. Um, and, and I think that the way to explain that is that when you come to court, whether it's a criminal or a civil case, there are allegations between at least two sides. So in a criminal case, the state has um, alleged that someone committed a particular crime. And then the point of the court case is for the state to prove that the person committed that crime and for the defense to prove that the person didn't. Um, and similarly, in, in a civil case, there's allegations at least on one side and, and the other side is defending those allegations. So, so someone in court before a judge is out to prove that a certain set of facts actually occurred. That's quite different to, to the purpose and the function of a commission of inquiry, like the Zondo Commission. As, as you say, it's inquisitorial. So ultimately, Judge Zondo had a mandate to explore a certain factual schema, um, as is set out in, in the mandate of the commission, but an outcome wasn't set out for him. So he isn't setting out to prove that a particular thing occurred. He's setting out to explore and find out ultimately what did occur. So when people come before the commission, whether they come voluntarily or the commission has called them to come there, Judge Zondo doesn't say to them, I think you did this. He says, what did you do? And, and that's the difference is that the, there's no pre there's no predetermined outcome that someone's trying to prove. Rather, it's essentially a fact-finding mission. And then Judge Zondo will assess all of the facts ultimately and write his report. And that report will conclude on what 
based on the evidence that was brought to the commission, he believes occurred. And so it's, it's ideally a commission of inquiry is not about Judge Zondo or the, or the chairperson of the commission saying to different witnesses before him what he thinks they did. As I said, it's about him asking them about what happened. And, and that's why it's important when one witness comes and says, and implicates someone else, says that if, if witness A comes and says that witness B stole some money, it's important for Judge Zondo to call witness B as, as he does and tries to do, um, so that he can hear witness B's side of the story. And, and then he can weigh up the various evidence and, and come to the conclusion as to what he believes happened in his report. To use the example that you've just used now of witnesses A and B, um, I think it's important to get for the commission to, to get sworn evidence from both. It appears that it has struggled you know, to get implicated persons to come before it to provide versions of their evidence. Has that been your observation as well? Yes, in general it has. I, I think that that's something quite fair to expect because when someone is implicated, they usually don't want to come in front of this, you know, the whole of South Africa on TV being recorded and, and give their version of events unless, you know, they, they're actually innocent and they're out to prove their innocence. So I think that in some ways the commission has struggled with that, but it does have some mechanisms to assist it there. Um, we have seen that in, in quite particular examples, such as former President Zuma, that the commission has been very reluctant to use those, those kind of stronger mechanisms, such as a subpoena. Particularly, it, it's a very extreme case with former President Zuma, but the commission really, as a very, very last resort, only issued a subpoena for him to come before it. So it has struggled somewhat. Um, I think, however, that the fact that you know, it's, it's been extended so many times. And my understanding is that its mandate and, and duration of operation has now been extended again. Um, I think it's quite clear that there is a lot of information and, and evidence coming before it, but perhaps that the very particular implicated people haven't yet all appeared. Interesting that you bring up the Jacob Zuma matter. I mean, the Constitutional Court earlier this year came down pretty hard on the commission saying that some of the issues that you've brought to us were pretty much of your own doing. This is in particular relation to how it has treated the former president. To date, he has not deposed to an affidavit before the commission, despite this being promised by his legal counsel on numerous occasions. How does the commission go on to make findings on state capture without the evidence of Mr. Jacob Zuma? So I think, as you've said, it's very clear that, that the commission and as the Constitutional Court found earlier this year was very, very slow to use those strong mechanisms such as subpoenas to, to get former President Zuma to come before it. And I think it's, it's obvious, but also very important to say that while the commission is a legal instrument, it's clearly operating in a very highly charged political environment and that it appears that it was perhaps too different to that environment in, in the way in which it approached trying to get former President Zuma to come give evidence before it. But 
what it seems and, and what the legal position would be ultimately if the commission is its term of operation does come to an end without the evidence of former President Zuma. Um, and, and as you say, he hasn't yet submitted an affidavit which would contain his evidence written. Uh, the written affidavit would not be sufficient. He would also need to appear in person and give oral evidence so that um, he could be questioned on that affidavit by both the chairperson and, and the counsel for the commission, but also any other persons he might implicate in that affidavit evidence. If, if the commission comes to a close without that opportunity, I think it is quite clear that it has given the former president every possible chance to come before it. If he still does not come before it, that there is huge risk to him now that certain findings might be made against him. And that unfortunately, he has not recognized that risk and not taken the opportunity to perhaps come and defend himself. So that, that would ultimately be the commission's, um, um, it would be its obligation in those kinds of circumstances that it operates fairly to all persons who either have relevant evidence or perhaps might be implicated in other evidence before it, that those persons have their opportunity to come in and defend themselves, to present their side of, of the story and, and um, to, to give evidence before the commission. As I said, I, I think it's quite clear that the commission has perhaps too much or, or gone too far in giving the former president that fair opportunity. And that if he ultimately isn't able to, or, or decides not to take that up, then it might, it might well draw findings against him. Now we're all aware of um, the events of November, 2020, when Mr. Zuma applied for the recusal of DCJ Zondo. It was largely seen as a last-ditch last effort on his part to dodge accountability. Now, with this in mind, can we really say that his legal team made a solid case for recusal, or was it just a case of the end justifying the means on his part? So what I would say at the outset is that anyone who's appearing before either a judge in, in a court case or someone like a chairperson in a commission of inquiry like Judge Zondo is, um, and who appears before that person at risk that they might make findings against them. That person has the legal right to raise the issue of recusal. And the test for recusal legally would be whether there is either actual bias or an appearance of bias of the, the presiding officer, the judge or the chairperson as against the witness who's appearing before them. So I, I wouldn't want to go into my own assessment of the facts because my reading of at very least former President Zuma's recusal application before Judge Zondo um, is, is quite outdated. But my understanding, what, what, or maybe I can say what happened in that case was that he, he brought that application, Judge Sonder refused the application, said that, that former President Zuma hadn't met that legal test. And so in the circumstances for Judge Sonder, he sought to continue with, form, with the former president's evidence. The former president then said that he was actually going to take that application to a high court. And my understanding is that that application, if it has been instituted, is still pending. So, and, and, and I will say that I haven't read the court papers if they have been filed. 
So at very least, at, in terms of the processes that have so far been undertaken, which at the moment is just the application before Judge Zondo in the commission, that was refused. And so what, what should have happened if, if the former president did not take that any further was that he should have continued to sit before the, the Zondo Commission. And obviously he received legal advice and, and did not do so, but I'm not sure what, what the actual next steps that he has taken are. It led to a police complaint made by Zondo against the former president because he ended up walking out after the recusal was, was refused, of course. Now, I want to take you a couple of years back to 2018. Three of the people thought to be at the center of, state, of the state capture project, the Gupta brothers, applied to the commission to have their evidence heard remotely. They asked that they be heard from their current base in Dubai, but this was denied. Could that decision so early in the life of the commission have possibly compromised its work, given the detail to which the Guptas have been implicated since? So the first thing that I would say is that the commission in general and, and persons, all South Africans who are watching the commission and interested in its work would agree that having the evidence of any of the members of the Gupta family who are implicated in the evidence before it would in general be of assistance to the commission's work. The mandate, as you say, is, is so closely related to so many of the allegations against the Gupta family that giving them an opportunity to put their side to the commission would be in general really helpful. But again, that, that's on the assumption that they would approach the commission and give evidence to the commission in good faith. And it's been a long time since I read the, the reasoning of, of the commission and its ruling on that application. So I'm not gonna comment on the legal aspects of that ruling, but I think that it's important to look at that good faith quality of the application by the members of the, the Gupta family. Were they really offering to assist the commission? Were they offering to present evidence to the commission in the spirit of the mandate of the commission? or were they trying to um, find ways to defend themselves and to clear their own reputations? And I won't answer that because I, I think that that's again, dependent on an assessment of the facts. But I think that it's clear that if the members of the Gupta family, if their primary goal was to act in good faith and to assist the commission, then they would comply with the commission's requirements and have come to South Africa. And that their failure or their, their decision not to do that perhaps casts doubt over the extent to which their evidence would actually be able to assist the commission. No, no, it does indeed. But I have to say the ruling was made very early in the commission, in the life of the commission, that is. So I, it went on to hear so many allegations against them and their business associates in relation to the appointment of government officials, large procurement projects, is the commission not poorer though for not having heard the family's version in its oral evidence? So the answer in general is probably yes. It is probably poorer for not having that evidence. But I think that even though the that decision and that application was, as you say, brought right at the beginning of the commission's work, anyone who had read the public protector's report that, that led to the establishment of the commission knew that 
in whatever way, and while we didn't know the extent of the, the um, or the particulars of, of the allegations which would be brought against the Gupta family, it was very clear to those who'd read the Public Protector's report that they would be central to the allegations and to the work of the commission. And so I don't think it's that the, the commission when reaching that ruling was not aware that this would be vital evidence. It's more, as, as I'd said previously, whether the offer to present evidence was made in good faith and was made in support of the mandate of the commission. And, and ultimately, as I've said, I'm, I'm not sure that it was because the offer was limited to an offer to present evidence from Dubai and not from South Africa. I hear you. Now, my final question to you is, the DCJ issued police complaints against three witnesses. Dudumieni, for instance, was reprimanded for having named a protected witness in her oral evidence in November last year. The other two, of course, were the former president and another um, implicated person who was a contractor to, to Prasa. What legal grounds or standing do the complaints have in the greater scheme of things in the sense that do any of them have the grounds to take the commission to court perhaps and demand that those complaints be struck off its record at all? Yes, it, it might be helpful to, to explain why the commission has the power to do that and to lay those complaints and, and to answer your question by doing that. So in the, in the Commission of Inquiries Act, certain forms of conduct are established to be offences. So for example, where a commission has power to issue a subpoena and then you refuse to comply with that subpoena, that constitutes an offence. And so like any other offence, when, when someone has committed an offence, someone might may, is empowered to report that offence to the police. And then the police, together with the National Prosecuting Authority, investigate that offence or the allegation of the offence. And depending on their investigation, might then elect to prosecute that person for that offence. So, for example, with Dudumieni, when she had um, mentioned the name of the person who was a protected witness, she was committing something that in the Commission's Act is defined as an offence. The commission then reported that offence to the police. The police must now investigate it. And then again, with the National Prosecuting Authority, if there is sufficient information, they decide to prosecute her. Her opportunity to complain would be in the context of that prosecution. So she doesn't complain against the commission. She defends herself in court if she's charged in court with the crime. I think at very least with Dudumieni, um, with her having mentioned the name of, of a protected witness, my recollection is that she did so repeatedly even after Judge Zondo had reminded her not to. So yeah, so, so I'm not sure about the other examples you're talking about. I just remember that one that it was essentially a repeated offense and it was ultimately because she had done so despite warning, despite being told that she wasn't allowed to, that it, it seemed to be perhaps um, rather than just a slip up, perhaps something that might have been intentional or appeared to be intentional. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Ariella. It's been a very interesting and very enlightening discussion. Thanks so much, Mopeng, and, and thanks for continuing to highlight these issues. It is really, really important that, that we keep our eye on the work of the Commission.
That's it for this episode. I've been your host, Mabeng Valencia Dalani. Join us again soon for more discussions on the State Capture Commission. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Stay safe. Volume.